0: This morning's reading is taken from Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 31 and can be found on the Pew Bibles on page 1049. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son put together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs? He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here am I starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost You killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But he had to celebrate and be glad because his brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's um, pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your words and even those passages that are uh, so familiar to us. We thank you that you reveal yourself through your word, and we pray that you do so afresh this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So a question for you, what have a three-leaf clover, aquafresh toothpaste and an egg got in common? They're all things that in the past I've tried to use to define the Trinity. Um, mainly when I was a bit younger and before I did theology and realized the flaws in those illustrations. And over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God three in one. Now, in our worship and in our understanding of God, we should never uh, separate them out. Uh, he has always been three. Uh, he will always be three in one, uh, one in three, however you want to rephrase it. Uh, and so we can't separate them and say that one is more important than the other, because that's simply not true. Um, but for the sake of understanding the Trinity, for the next few weeks, we will be separating them out. Um, but that's only from the point of view of understanding. And then uh, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be bringing the three uh, together. But you will find over the next few weeks that I don't think myself or any of the other people preaching on this will be able to refer to one without referring to the others. It's just not going to be possible because he is one God, three in one, who always has been, uh, always will be, ever the same God. But today we are looking at God as Father. Father. We've got uh, many names for God in our scriptures. Uh, The scriptures have a wealth of names. And actually, if we were to list them, I don't think we'd have time to even say them all out um, this morning. I mean, uh, he's known as creator, redeemer, restorer, uh, healer, the king of kings, lord of lords, alpha and omega, beginning and the end to name just just a few of those. I wonder if you've ever stopped to wonder why it is that when we refer to him in the context of the Trinity, the one we use is the word father. Why not Creator son and Holy Spirit? Why not uh, Redeemer son and Holy Spirit? Why not King of Kings and son and Holy Spirit? Why is it we choose the word Father? Well, obviously, it's mainly because Jesus did, and we'll come to that in a moment. And the concept of God as Father isn't a new one particularly. It's in the Old Testament as well. Uh, He is referred to as the Father of Nations, the Father of Israel. Uh, There's a passage in Isaiah, which we didn't have read this morning, which which says that you are the Father and we are the clay. You are the potter and we are the clay, it goes on to say uh, as well. And so the concept of God as Father isn't a new one. But something about Jesus radically shifted the way that we are able to relate to God as our Father. You see, the reality is he has always been your Father and you have always been his child. His people have always been his children and he has always been their Father. But there's something about Jesus coming that created a shift in our relationship, in how people relate to the God in whose image they were made, to the one that we refer to As Lord and God. And he gave us not only the permission, but also the freedom and the right to be able to call God, the one who made everything, our Father. And I think that's quite an incredible thing. You may ask uh, about Jesus and and what Jesus uh, came for. Now, Jesus did come to die for our sins. Absolutely. He came that we may be forgiven. Yes, totally agree with that. He came that we may be uh, set free, that we may have life in all its fullness. All of these things that Jesus said he came to do. But the main question is, well, why did he do that? And the ultimate answer is because there is a father in heaven who loves you so much that he couldn't bear to be separated from you any longer. And so Jesus was sent into the world. The reality is, God doesn't need you. He doesn't. God wouldn't cease to be God if he didn't have a relationship with you. He wouldn't be any less God. But he wants you. Because he's a loving, heavenly father. And you are his children. And so he longs. For people to repent and to turn to him because he knows that there is nothing better for us than him. John Ortberg says that every soul is searching for a father. Every soul is searching for a father. Now that seems like a really uh, strong phrase. You may have heard it phrased differently, that we all have this God-shaped hole in our lives. And until we find God, that hole will never be satisfied. But why is it that John orberg goes to separate it and to say that every soul is searching for a father? Uh, Bear Grylls does a similar thing thing. I know he's not known to be a theologian Bear Grylls, particularly like John Ortberg but Bear Grylls is somebody that I admire quite a lot, Uh, those of you who don't know who he is, he's an adventurer Uh, he was in the SAS and now he teaches people how to survive in the wilderness he has many TV shows uh, an all round manly man and a great bloke and he is um, a Christian and an advocate of the Alpha Course and um, when he came to faith at the age of 17 Um, he was sat up in a tree, as only Bear girls would be, I think, um, having just suddenly lost a very close friend. And he said to God, and he'd been brought up with the Christian faith around him, but hadn't made a confession of faith himself. And he said to God, God, show me yourself as the father I remember you to be. And from that moment onwards, he gave his life to the person of Jesus. And in an interview about that, about two years ago, he said this. So often we hide behind our yearning for love and acceptance with loads of complicated theological questions. But once all that is stripped away, what we really are is just somebody who wants to have a relationship with God the Father. When you strip all of that away, what we really are is just somebody who wants a relationship with God the Father. And why are they specifying God the Father? Well, it's because we're made in his image and we are his children. And we were separated from God at the fall. And it makes absolute sense that from the moment we're born, we have a longing in us to reconnect with the Father in whose image we are made. It makes perfect sense to me. And people search for that longing in all of the wrong places until by grace and by grace alone, Jesus reveals to them their need for him, their need to surrender, their need to repent, their need to turn, their need to live their life with Jesus. And in that, they find he has made that way possible. He has made that relationship possible. Jesus says, I have come that you may know the Father. He prays that we will know him the way that he knows the Father and that we will be in the Father as he is in the Father in unity and all those kind of things that, that Jesus desires that we know the Father. And when he teaches his disciples to pray and they're like, how should we pray? And he says, you should pray like this, our Father in heaven. He gave them the right to call God their Father, something that had never been done quite like that before. To use not just any phrase for Father, but to use the term Abba Father, which is the most intimate phrase you could possibly imagine. Imagine for a father and a son or a father and a daughter to have. The closest we have, and it's not even doesn't even come very close at all, but the closest we have here is the word daddy. That there's something slightly more intimate about the word daddy than there is about the word dad. And I know the day's coming and I dread it when my kids are gonna switch from one to the other. But you know, until then, that intimate phrase of the word daddy is the one we can, or even more intimate than that, is one we can use with God. But only because of Jesus. Only because of what he came to do on the cross. What he made possible by redemption. But the difficulty is, I'm sure actually, I'm willing to say, that everybody here in this room, at some level, struggles with one aspect of the Trinity. In terms of how you relate to God. Maybe you uh, believe in God, but you struggle with the whole Jesus side of things. Maybe you have a close, intimate relationship with Jesus, uh, but you are fearful of, or you don't trust the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're fine with the Spirit, but you, you struggle with the concept of, uh, of Jesus in some other way. But what I come across more than anything else is people who struggle with the concept of God as a father. And they may uh, replace him as something else. <laughs> Uh, Or they may uh, replace him um, in some other way in their worship. And the reason for that, I think, is because all we have to go on when we think about the term father is our experience on earth of our earthly fathers. And we project that experience onto God the father quite naturally and quite normally because we have no other way of doing it and that can happen uh, in a negative way both if you have a positive experience but also if you have a negative experience of uh, your father growing up now I'm somebody who I consider myself uh, very blessed to have a good father who I love and who loves me we get on very well uh, we have a good relationship uh, my brothers and I know that we're loved when we were growing up um, uh, my dad worked a lot but he more than made up for that time when he was around and so I, I know that I'm very privileged and very blessed to have that kind of relationship with my dad and one of the things that's great about my dad is that he lets whoever's in the front seat of the car the front passenger seat of the car choose the music uh, which i think is a a very generous thing to do as a driver of a car now normally that was my brother because he was the eldest but when i came to faith at the age of 16 uh, and i was the only one kind of left in the house i sat in the front of the car more often and my music suddenly changed from queen which he loved uh, to worship music, which was completely alien to him. Uh, and I remember uh, one day, on the way to bowling, probably, because that's where we were often going together, uh, the Father's Song by Matt Redman came on. And I was singing that song. I don't know if you know that song, but it talks about God being this perfect father. And I remember stopping singing and thinking, I wonder how this makes my dad feel right now that I'm singing that suddenly there's a father who's better than even him. You see, even if we have a good experience of a father, it can have a negative experience, or expression on how we relate to God as father. Maybe you've loved your father and you've lost your father and you feel really bad for replacing your earthly dad with God as father. That you feel really bad about doing that. And so if you've got that really positive experience of an earthly father, I want to ask you this question. Who was your father first? You see, the only reason my dad had me as an idea, although they tell me I was an accident, but let's not go there. Um, The only reason that my parents had the idea to have me is because my heavenly father conceived the idea first, even before my earthly father was born. You see, God has always been my father. It's not about replacing. It's about the fact that God has always been my father. What about those of you here who had a father who was absent? Maybe because of work, maybe because of choice. Maybe you never knew your father growing up. And the difficulty is there that when we come to try to relate to God as father, what we often find is that we assume God is distant. God just isn't around for me. He doesn't have time for me. He doesn't have space for me. He's too busy with other people with more important things going on in their lives than me. And we can believe and project that lie onto God because that's our experience. But it's not who God is. God is always present, God is always close, God always has time for you. Do you know what? That when you pray to God, you have His full attention, you are His absolute priority in that moment. Because He is a perfect Father, He's not like the Father who was absent and distant. He's perfect and always with us. For those of you, and this is a tricky one I will confess, for those of you who had an abusive father growing up, a father who didn't treat you as you know a father should treat you, or the first thing I just feel whenever I I speak on this subject that I, I need to repent on behalf of all fathers. I don't know if you can do that kind of thing, but nothing breaks my heart more then hearing of a man abusing the gift that God has given them to be the father of a child and abusing that right. Nothing breaks my heart more and I believe it grieves God's heart too. And if you've grown up in that environment and are aware this is a very difficult thing to conceive and this whole relating to God as Father can be a very painful thing. But your Heavenly Father is not like that. Where you've been told you're useless, he wants to affirm you that you are worth everything. Where you've been told that you are worthless, he's been told that he, he's, he's given everything to make you worthy. Where you've been told that you are a waste of space, he has created that space for you. Where you've been told you're not good enough, he's been told you're worth dying, he's telling you you're worth dying for. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not going to stand here and profess that this is easy. But I want to say this. That for every single experience of an earthly father you have that may have caused pain. There is something in the character of God as father that can bring the restoration you need. So don't replace him as something else. See him as the father he longs to be for you. And allow him to do that work within you. Some of you may need more than that. Some of you may need uh, counselling to help you do that. Or a trusted Christian friend or uh, somebody else to share it with. And do that if you feel that's something you need. But I can almost guarantee that there is something in the character of God as Father that can bring the restoration you need. Because he is not like any earthly father, good or bad. He is a perfect father who loves you with an unfailing love and this story of the prodigal son so well known so familiar to us almost so familiar we can switch off to it but please don't because this is one of the most incredible gospel truths is that yes our father longs for repentance yes he longs to see people come to him but the reason is because he is a loving father and this story shows us a number of things about that father that i think are important for us to grasp the first thing is that he is a father who gives us choice. He's not a father who wants a load of robots who have to love him. He wants children who choose him. And so the, the prodigal son in this story has that freedom of choice. And at first he makes the wrong choices that all of us do. But then he makes the right choice and he seeks to go back to the father. But God gave him that choice. The second son had the same choice, but he chose to respond differently, as we'll see in a moment. Secondly, we see that he is a father who longs for restoration of relationship. He longs to see our relationship with him restored, which is why he sent Jesus, which is why he paid the price for us on the cross. You see, what I love about this story is that the son uh, goes home expecting judgment, expecting to be told off, expecting to be punished, and all of those things that we're deserving of, and he was deserving of by, by the way that he lived his life, but what he found actually was a father who'd been waiting for him to come home and ran to make sure reconciliation happened and embraced the son and made that reconciliation possible. He longs to restore our relationship with him. We see also that he's a father of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, of peace, of restoration. And so we see in the items that he gives the son. I don't know if you've ever looked into the significance of these items, but they are, if you understand the culture of the time, they are remarkable. Because the, the, the shoes that he gives him, the sandals, are basically a symbol of, of status of saying, this now is where you belong, son. This is where you lay your feet. This is where you are to remain. And then he throws the fattened calf onto, uh, to, throws this massive party with the fattened calf. That was reserved for the most special of guests. If royalty were coming to visit, that's what the fattened calf would have been for. And he uses it on his son. And then the robe which he places around him is a symbol of status and identity and royalty and saying, look, you are worthy here, you belong here, uh, this is where you should be. And then the ring. I don't know about you, but whenever I've pictured the father giving the son the ring, I've always pictured this nice kind of uh, ruby ring or something with a sapphire in it or something, you know, these huge rings that they used to have in those times. But actually when you look at the culture of the time, it was very different from that. What the father actually gave the son was the family signet ring that was used to sign all the checks, seal all the letters. What he basically did is said, Everything I have, son, is now yours. Not just the inheritance that you've taken and wasted, but everything I have is yours. And where have we heard that before? That we become heirs of the kingdom? That everything that's God's is ours because of Jesus. And so we see that He is the God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we see that He's a Father we can have a relationship with. He embraces the Son. And we see that He accepts us as we are. And to see the lesson of how He accepts us as we are, I don't actually want to look at the prodigal Son, I want to look at the second Son for a moment. The second son who, when he hears that his brother has returned and what his father has done to celebrate that fact, is really, really angry. He is is infuriated because the way he sees it, he's worked so hard for the father's approval. He has always sought to do right by the Father. He's always sought to, to work hard for him, to serve him, to honour him. And he's always been there. He didn't run off like his brother did, but he stayed and he remained. And so he's angry that his brother, who's wasted everything, gets this special treatment. And the thing I'd not noticed for the, in this passage uh, until very recently is that the son is in the field sulking and refusing to come into the house. Look at who makes the first move. The father. The father goes out to the son. Accepts him even as he is. And reminds the son, look it's not about striving. It's not about earning my approval. You've always been here. Everything I have has always been yours. And there are far too many Christians in the church, like the second son, fighting hard for the father's approval that's already been given on the cross. Everything we have is already, everything he has is already ours when we repent and we accept him into our lives. Because he's a father who loves his children. And we see that in this story, so well known, but so powerful. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God the Father specifically. I don't know how easy you find it to call Him Father. I don't know what baggage comes with that word for you, whether negative or positive. But what I do know is that I have found God the Father to be perfect. To be trustworthy, to be good, to be loving, gracious, merciful, and everything we read about him to be in his word. And if you struggle with the concept of God the Father, I hope on some level you're fine with Jesus. And you trust that Jesus is not a liar. So if Jesus tells us that the Father loves us, then believe his words and respond to them. And make it your priority this week, this year, to know the Father better. To know his love for you better. And sometimes that might mean surrendering things. It might mean laying things down in order to turn to him. But the one thing I've learned is that there is no better place to view life. To view the circumstances of life, the struggles of life, the joys of life, the challenges of life the pain of life, there's no better place to view that than from the lap of Father God. No better place. Because it's in that place all our true perspective is found as beloved, chosen, adopted, won for, bought at a price for children of a loving Heavenly Father. So may we know Him better and may we show Him better to the world around us. Amen.